Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hello, hello. Welcome, everyone, to episode 63 of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Thank you all so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate that. Uh, We have a really great episode. We actually have on an industry leader in the field of sensory integration today. It is Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rowley, and I'm going to introduce her in just a moment. We're going to talk all about sensory integration, how it kind of came to be a thing a little bit, how she got involved with it, where it's going in the future, and then we're also going to talk about um, independent educational evaluations a little bit. She provides IEEs here in Southern California, so I'm going to pick her brain on IEEs, so stay tuned for that. But first, I wanted to make just a few quick announcements. I want to thank all of you that have already signed up for the Back to School Conference in August. Super exciting. I can't wait for it. Um, I have received a frequently asked question about it, and that is, will I be providing continuing education units for it? So I want to make it clear right now, yes, I will be providing a certificate of completion for going. Currently, it is not AOTA approved. I am working on that. But just keep in mind that MBCOT and most states don't require professional development to be AOTA approved. That being said, I am in the process of working on that. And trust me, I will make a big announcement when it is AOTA approved. Crossing my fingers, hopefully within the next few weeks that I can do that, all right? Second thing is, big announcement too, is transcripts. I am now going to be producing transcripts for the OT Schoolhouse podcast. So um, if you hear something and you just want to be able to read it as well, be sure to check out the show notes for this one, otschoolhouse.com forward slash episode 63. You will be able to either view the transcripts right there on the page or download a copy for yourself so you can read it, I don't know, anywhere else you might want to read the transcripts, all right? So that is a little bit of housekeeping for today. Let's go ahead and move on now to my introduction for Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rowley. All right, so Suzanne is an occupational therapist with over 40 years of experience in pediatric practice, specializing in child development, sensory integration, learning difficulties, visual impairment, and autism. She obtained her bachelor in science in OT at Indiana University, her master's in allied health sciences at Boston University, and her OTD at the University of Southern California. Suzanne practices in a private practice in Orange County, California, serving children and families through evaluation and consultation services. She was certified in SI sensory integration in 1977, having studied under Dr. A. Jean Ayers, who, of course, we've all heard of. She later co-founded and directed the USC WPS sensory integration certificate program for 15 years. She is currently the co-founder and president of the nonprofit organization Collaborative for Leadership and Sensory Integration, also known as Classy, which we will also talk about a little bit later today. She is a past chair of the Commission on Practice and the Sensory Integration Special Interest Section for AOTA and a contributing author of the Occupational Therapy Practice Framework Domain and Process from 2002 and 2008. So she really helped to to lay the groundwork for the new OTPF. She is an internationally recognized author and lecturer and co-editor of books Understanding the Nature of Sensory Integration with Diverse Populations and Sensory Integration, Applying Clinical Reasoning to Diverse Populations. She is a fellow of the American OT Association and recipient of the American OT Foundation Virginia Scardina Award of Excellence and the American Occupational Therapy Foundation A. Jean Ayers Award. So please help me to welcome 
Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rowley. Hello, Dr. Rowley. Welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you on. I must say, I don't think any occupational therapist or occupational therapy assistant even can graduate out of school without seeing your name somewhere, whether it's in a textbook or on a article. You have many, many. I was actually just looking at your CV the other day, and it's just like pages and pages of so much amazing things that you have done. So um, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're um, welcome. We're going to get into that research in a bit, but I want to start off with just some questions about how you got to where you are in the OT world and um, how you made such this huge impact on the OT profession. And so my first question that I want to ask, and I do this with all of my guests, is when and why and how did you decide to become an occupational therapist? Well, it was dumb luck, to be honest. Oh, really? <laughs> Well, I didn't know what OT was really, but I was, I was, you know, a college student and my mom was a nurse and I knew I wanted to work in healthcare and I had volunteered in mental hospitals and I wanted to do something in mental health, but I knew I did not want to be a nurse. That was <laughs> way, it was a way too messy. <laughs> That's funny. But then I looked in the catalog and I was like, oh, look at that. You can do crafts and you can do mental health. And, you know, so I I signed up. I got uh -huh. into OT school, which was amazing. And then, you know, then I was like, whoa, you know, what what is this? What, what are, we really <laughs> doing? are we really doing here? And I, but I think, honestly, my confusion with what OT was, was, a contribution when later I worked on the OT practice framework, I thought, well, students should come in and have a, you know, summary document that they sort of grasp this um, profession that is so profoundly important and has such a big impact on, on our clients. Um, but it's a little hard to wrap your head around. So, you know, in that old English term occupation, what does it mean? You know, are you, are you getting people back to work? You know, so, you know, that age old thing, you know, what is yep. OT? Um, so yeah, I was, I was just lucky. Wow. So yeah, it's always interesting because, you know, you have people that knew they wanted to be an OT because maybe they themselves or they had a sibling that, that went to OT. Uh, but so often you find that no one knew what OT was until they're basically in it. Um, so that, that's pretty interesting. Um, I had no idea about the practice framework. I actually kind of want to lean into that just a little bit. You you did work on the practice framework, but you kind of brought another side of it. And what you just said is that you really wanted to have this document for people coming in to really understand what the profession is. Um, can you discuss just a little bit about that and, and your work with that? Yeah, yeah. I was I was so privileged. I was invited to be on the Commission on Practice for the American OT Association. And it was in the tenure of the transition from uniform terminology to a, to something else. And the something else ended up to be the OT practice framework, domain and process. So we actually stayed an extra year to get that first version done. And and the idea was that the the UT3 had become like a shorthand even for for billing but it was it was a bit reductionistic um and so how do we take this volume 
of work in OT with so many different theories and methods and consolidate it into something that can be used for all given the diversity of practice. And so I think that was an enormous achievement. And then I was invited to chair the commission on practice for the next term. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that term, we were asked to revise it to, to do the second edition. So I was the first author on the second edition, of course, with a team, (laughs) an amazing, an amazing team of, of, Uh of OTs and scholars. And, and, and in that position, we were also invited to then, you know, go, in different parts of the world to share this with other leaders and other organizations. Um, For example, in Israel or, you know, um, where, where, I don't know, we went, we went (laughs) to many different places, Australia and, and uh, Hong Kong and, and the leaders of those other countries, um, they didn't adopt our U S model wholesale, but they used this framework to then construct their own, you know, with continuity of OT. And of course, then what we saw is that the OT practice framework then changed the curricula in all of the OT programs in the United States so that there was conformity, consistency of language. And um, yeah, so that was that was a, a huge and amazing undertaking. Of course, now we have the third and fourth. Yeah additions with other teams that have gone on, I think, to make it better and better. Yeah. I mean, there was a great foundation, but man, I haven't even got through the fourth one. They really added a lot in this new version. I mean, it's a, it's a handful, that's for sure. So I'm looking forward to getting into a little bit more. Um, You just talked about having some very unique experiences traveling the world uh, I, I just want to ask you about that because one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is that I do have people from China that reach out to me, people from Australia, from the UK. Um, what has been a, a memorable moment for you that has been a result of being an occupational therapist and sharing the profession? You know, I have so many memories. One of the things I was invited to do was to ha- be on a, a panel in Brazil with um, scholars there who were talking about the essence of OT and the impact of OT. And it was, it was really interesting for me because there, most of the people on the panel were really theorists, you know, Uh they were creating OT style theory. Um, And I, and I'm, I identify as a practitioner. Okay. And I know I've done education and research, but, but I was like, well, let's get this grounded into practice. And it was really interesting to get feedback on that panel. I mean, I've I've really traveled on every continent to wow. teach sensory integration courses and and um, meet with leaders. You know, and and you know, really, OT is so magnificent in terms of the evolution of our profession. You know, the U.S. We have. Um, you know, we have the best textbooks that probably mm. the majority, not that there's not wonderful textbooks yeah. emerging from other countries, but we have such a volume of scholarship emerging out of the United States that then influences people around the world. So in OT in general, but then also in sensory integration. So we've, we've really gone everywhere and watched OT evolve in, in various countries 
Mm-hmm. And, it, and in my opinion, um, the work that we've done in sensory integration and the foundation of a scientifically theory mm-hmm. frame of reference with a very scholarly data-driven decision-making that, that informs clinical reasoning, it really advances the professionality of occupational therapy in, in other countries as well as the United States. Yeah, definitely. I mean... Like you said, we just have a lot of the research that's happening here. Um, OT, I think it's just, it's more well-known here than it is in several other places in the world. And so we have people in school, we have people doing doctor, we have people doing research that is that leads us to be able to have all that good stuff that we are able to do. Um, yeah, actually, again, going back to your CV, I saw that you had the WFOT on your CV. And so I didn't know it's only like $36 a year or something like that. So I emailed AOTA and was like, boom, I want to be a part of that because I want to know what's going on in the world. So, um, but yeah. All right. Well, you kind of started to mention SI a little bit. That's what we're really going to dive into today. And as we transition into that, I want to let you just kind of share where you are at in your OT career. What's important to you right now? What are you focusing on? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the downhill stretch here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been doing this for, you know, over 40 years. Um, and, you know, what are we focused on? You know, uh, the, the practical things I do on a day-to-day, one is that I have my, my it, you know, my private practice, my business, and I conduct mm-hmm. occupational therapy evaluations and consultation. And, you know, it's housed in Center Point for Children. And my daughter is now, she has her doctorate in OT and she's running that clinic. Oh. Um, And then the other big piece is uh, continuing with education and research, and we're running the nonprofit collaborative for leadership in air sensory integration. We're offering synchronous and asynchronous um, online now because of COVID. We're not doing any on-site, but synchronous and asynchronous online uh, education programs in sensory integration. That's awesome. Yeah, I did have the chance to go. Um, through the WPS SI program back when it was with WPS. I know now it now it's kind of gone a few different ways. And what you just mentioned is one of the ways. Um, and yeah, you were, I think, my course three instructor, or one of the instructors. <laughs> I want to say it might have been you and Zoe, but um, it was it was just amazing being a part of that. And so I'm happy to have you here to share more about that. Um, so let's talk about SI. And that first question is, is how did you learn to come or how did you come to learn about sensory integration and what were your kind of first initial thoughts of sensory integration if you remember back when you're just kind of starting to learn about it well it started in my undergrad um you know i got a bachelor of science at indiana university and one of my professors was shereen farber and she invited us literally the students to come to her house and study neuro beyond the basic curriculum because we were all kind of stunned with you know anatomy and neuro and and she brought it to life and she was working with joy huss and i don't know if you know these names but they were really um they they were they were producing seminal work in sensory motor functions in theory and and also you know getting their toe wet in in research well and of course it was about that same time that Dr. Ayers was publishing her original set of tests, the Southern California Sensory Integration Test. And 
and she came to lecture in in some 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 place around there and i went uh-huh. to hear her and i was uh-huh. blown out of the water um ot in general didn't captivate me i i was struggling with understanding what we were supposed to do but as soon as i get in, got into that i was I was captivated, and then I I had the privilege to work with Ginny Scardina in Cincinnati. I I had a a field work. One of my field work assignments was um, in the Cincinnati Public Schools, and so we learned sensory integration and from the bottom up. And it was just well, it profoundly affected everything I have done to this day. Wow. Yeah. You know. Again, I I hear your name. I see your name, and I just like associate that with USC. But I know that you didn't start at USC. I know that came later and, and that you did work your way to Los Angeles and uh, be a huge part of the SI community. How did that kind of come to be? How did you get kind of folded into the actual SI leadership and with the USC and how did that come to be? Well, I, I, I turned right before I turned left. Um, <laughs> So I was with an amazing group of students and you will know these leaders names. I was with, you know, Shelley Lane and Jane Kumar and Joan Dostal and, and Mary Schneider and uh, Charlotte Ryan. I mean, these are many people who have become quite well-known leaders in occupational uh-huh. therapy and, and Jane, well, we, we started teaching sensory integration, but I, I didn't have a master's degree and I knew that that was critical. So Jane, Jane Kumar went to Boston and I was thinking, well, do I go to USC or do I go to Boston University? And I ended up going to Boston University and oh. Sharon Thermack was, um, you know, my thesis advisor okay. with Ann Henderson. So they were amazing. And then I knew I wanted to work with Dr. Ayers and I heard her, she was ill. And, and I thought, well, I, I need to do this as soon as possible. So, you know, given that you've already upended your life, I moved to California to work with Dr. Ayers. And then wow. I was captivated by the weather here. It was like, okay, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going back to those winters, 40 <laughs> below wind chill factor. Right. So I, I got uh, seduced by the beach and the weather and <laughs> and then also the work that was going on here which was really quite phenomenal yeah and so let's continue on with that then let's let's talk about that work that you you came to usc you're here you're working with uh, dr dr Ayers a little bit tell us about that experience well that was also life-changing dr Ayers was one of the most thoughtful brilliant minds um she cared deeply about the children and and her insights and her inquiry uh, was just unsurpassed. I mean, I, I have never encountered anything before or wow. since. Um, and I'm not the only one, right? Yeah. I, uh, I've heard it many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, she influenced a lot of people. She taught us how to think in in a scientific way. And then she taught us that to enact those principles, we had to do it in a very humane and compassionate, playful way. So, so this was uh, really pretty phenomenal. Um, and so, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was able to, you know, anytime she spoke, I went and, you know, if she, I was like, you know, can I help you in any kind mm-hmm. of way? So I was able to help her with some of the re in a very small way. Mm-hmm. 
but you know, but I kept hanging around and I would <laughs> stay in touch. And, um, and so, so through that process, you know, um, I was around when the SIPT was re-standardized. And of course I was one of the instructors for Sensory Integration International until that closed. Um, things were going a little bit haywire there. And that's when we started the USC WPS program. Um, Dr. Clark, Florence Clark was the um, chair at USC OT department then. And we pitched the, the proposal and I was the project director then for that wow. program for 15 years. Oh, wow. I had no idea that you were the program director. Yeah, wow. I was the, for well, for the sensory integration certificate program with yeah. that partnership between USC and WPS. Um, I left that position a little bit before they dissolved the partnership. They dissolved that partnership uh, in 2016. And that's the point at which USC stopped teaching the SIPT. Um, we started our program in class year around 2017. We felt that, you know, we didn't know that they were going to create another program. USC has since started mm -hmm. teaching sensory integration uh, classes again. But um, so in 2017, we continued. We continued to teach the SIFT. Um, I know there's some misinformation that once they dissolve the partnership, the SIFT isn't valid anymore. That's that's not real. Um, but yeah, we continue. Um, yeah, continue doing it. Well, so. I, I don't want to jump too far ahead of myself. I want to ask you more about the classy, more about the easy, all that good stuff. Uh, but I want to kind of stay where we're at right now. Um, the SIPT, you mentioned that. As far as I know right now, the SIPT is still the quote-unquote gold standard sensory integration and praxis test, sensory integration test. Is that still the case right now? That is still the case right now. Um, the, the SIPT is quite an amazing set of 17 tests. Um, and it's the only collection of tests that I know that allows you to understand the complexity of sensory motor and praxis abilities in children. It shows you the different patterns of the way children are processing and integrating information. and and it also gives you a roadmap of how to do intervention. And I don't know any other tests that allow you to do that. It's a it's a performance measure, and you have you get standardized results. So um, it's quite phenomenal, actually, as as a tool. Yeah, and I remember I sat, like I said, about six years ago. I think it was the district that I was working for. They wanted someone that has some SI training. And so they sent me to all four of the WPS USC courses in SI. Um, I, I again, like I said earlier, I think it was the third course that you were there. And I just remember being able to, like, something would just pop up on the screen. And you know, you know it very well. It's the bar chart, the bar mm -hmm. chart of seventeen different tests and black lines going in every which direction. And the fact that you could just look at it and kind of almost give a story about this child based upon this chart and I'm struggling because I don't even know how to how to ask you this question but but what does that look like what goes through your mind as you're um, looking at the child's sensory integration practice test report what are you seeing that some of us who aren't as well versed don't see 
you know, um, actually, thank you for bringing that up because I remember when I was working with Dr. Ayers, she did that. She held up a graph and she, and then she just narrated what was going on with the child. And then she said, well, in this, and then Suzanne, you should take this child and you should get on the bolster swing and they should swing in prone. <laughs> <laughs> how do you get Same that? Thing, you go, okay, how did, how did you get there from there? Um, and then she could also see when there was an error, you know, while this, you know, this is probably measurement error by the, on the part of the therapist. I mean, mm -hmm. she could see when, you know, when the things weren't scored correctly. Well, now I've tested, I, I mean, literally over a thousand children. I mean, you know, I do a lot of mm -hmm. tests. So, so now when, when, okay, so a couple of things informs our information. One is, you know, having a lot of experience with this set of tests. But the other thing is that we have so many factor analyses that have shown us the relationships between the tests. So, um, so when you're looking at the configuration of scores, it, it almost gives you a, a profile of the child's nervous system. So, you know, if they have a language-based concern, if they have visual perceptual concerns, does the visual perceptual system work well, but they still have visual motor concerns? Or do they have poor body awareness through the tactile or proprioceptive systems? Then you start looking for praxis or dyspraxia because you know that's a pattern. And then you can see the vestibular piece. So, so you start to assess the strengths and weaknesses in the different sensory areas and how that links to those sensory motor skill areas that then are most related. Yeah. And then that allows you to understand, you know, what's going on, you know, in a certain kind of way. Um, and then also, you know, where, what are they going to like? And they're not going to like, they're not going to like what's hard for them. They're not going to, you know, if their language system isn't working for them, they're not going to like to follow a lot of verbal directions. You know, if they're dyspraxic, their transitions are going to be hard for them. They're not going to like other people to figure out something and have them do it because they're not going to figure that out. If they can't imitate, they're not going to like modeling because that's going to be hard for them to decode. So it so it helps you understand behaviors that sometimes are uh, interpreted in another way or not easily understood. I like the way you phrase that, that are interpreted in a different way or not easily understood with behaviors. Because um, so often, especially in the schools, you know, I'm a school-based occupational therapist. Um, we often get dragged in to see a student and the referral is behaviors. And sometimes the student will have ABA. Sometimes the students will have a, um, a functional behavior assessment with a behavior plan, but they still ask the OT to come in and look at these behaviors for sensory reasons or whatever that might be. And so I actually want to kind of go a little bit further with that and tell me more about those behaviors and how sensory integration can or difficulties with sensory integration can affect behavior. Yeah, and I, I think that that's interesting. And, you know, we're very committed to assessment. Um, so I think it's it's one thing to see on the, the surface of what the children are doing. And, and, you know, you and I know that 
you're going to see a whole range of behaviors. I mean, you know, depends on the system. So do you have a child with attention issues that can't sit still in the chair and they're popping up and down and they're not getting their work done and they're very capable, but they're not sitting still. Why aren't they sitting still? So what is that? Is that just ADD or ADHD or maybe do they have a vestibular problem where they're not processing movement and sustaining a stable posture could could be a hypothesis of course you have to do yeah. the assessment and you have to figure it out because it may be just ADHD that's a you know biochemical issue that you know is going to respond to Ritalin and that's you know it's not it's not the foundation isn't sensory right so that's fully possible uh-huh. um the what's happening a lot now with so many kids on the autism spectrum is that there's a whole range of behaviors where there um, may be, you know, self-injurious behaviors or or running into other children or somehow pounding their body or mm-hmm. throwing themselves on the ground. I mean, so, so more of a, you know, um, getting their body involved too much, too vigorously where they might hurt themselves or others and, and really rejecting um, what other people want them to do. And so for those children, you know, I would start to assess in the line of tactile awareness, kinesthetic awareness and praxis. Do they, do they know, can they perceptually interpret what other somebody else is thinking that the other person's plan (laughs) and then you know even if they understand the goal do they know how to get there do they know how to make that happen the and so many of those kids with autism have that and then such extreme responses to sensation so Mm -hmm. either very under or over response so sound hurts some aspects of touch hurt you know, food, you know, if they, if they hear the, you know, the pipes or oh, yeah. I heard one example that just blew me away. It was a, it was an adult with autism. And he was explaining when he was a student that he took a, a spelling test. And when he finished this test, he had 40 words, but there were only 20 words on the test. And the teacher oh, wow. discovered that he had written the words that the adjacent teacher in another room was giving to her class well as his own. And so you think, well, what is going on with that auditory system? And of course this man would get completely dysregulated by the end of the day, or if there was too much sound because he couldn't, he, he couldn't um, inhibit all of that. And then, you know, keep decoding. Uh, the decoding was putting such a load on his nervous system that he was just completely fatigued in social environments. Yeah. And, you know, that's really why I wanted you to come on here. I wish we could go over, you know, I wish I could just show you a video of a kid and you do exactly what you just did. And obviously that's not the time or place for that. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we're talking about sensory integration, but that's really what a course is for. And you know what, we're going to save it till the end, but I'm going to, um, to announce, you know, uh, Dr. Rowley has been so kind to actually give us a discount for OT Schoolhouse listeners. And so we will talk about that, um, that course in a minute. I want to ask you for those of everyone out there, there's, there's a lot of people that aren't trained formally in the SIFT, aren't trained formally 
um, through Classy or through any of the sensory integration programs. What do you, what do you, and I'm sure you get this question a lot. What do you say to school-based OTs or even clinic-based OTs that say, you know what, I just don't have that training. What can I do? What do you recommend? Yeah, you know, our, our entry-level OT preparation is phenomenal. There's so much that that is given to us in, in, at an entry level. But um, one of the things that I did when I was the chair of the sensory integration special interest section um, was to survey all of the programs in the United States. And I did it, of course, with my committee. None yeah. of this I did by myself. Um, but we surveyed everyone and we said, how much information do you get on sensory integration? And it was somewhere between none <laughs> and maybe a week or two weeks, but that, wow. you know, generally it was like a couple hours and it was usually embedded in a PEDS course. Um, we did it again. Okay. And I think that this was when Teresa Mae Benson was the chair. So, so again, we surveyed and say, okay, well, what's going on? It was very similar results. So what we know is that these specialty areas, not just sensory integration, but other kind of specialty mm -hmm. styles of practice are not covered in the general curriculum. And so, so this is, I think, something to be aware of um, that, that you need postgraduate training if you're going to specialize in sensory integration. Um, there are, it's not just classy, there are other programs. As I mentioned, USC has a program, um, Teresa May Benson, headed up a program through the Spiral Foundation. I think she's now um, doing education courses privately. There's, there's, you know, other programs around the world doing it through the South African in Institute of Sensory Integration, ASIYs in the UK, Austria. I, there, there are other programs, not just ours, but um, I would very much encourage people to meet the international standard. The International Council for Education and Sensory Integration have, has um, a set of guidelines. We published an article on this in OT practice. I'm happy to share that with you if you wanna share it with your, um, your, your listeners. Audience. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, to, to move from entry, you know, or basic level understanding to a certificate, and then, of course, on to more advanced and expert levels. So, um, so when, when I'm sitting across an IEP with a, with a, a therapist um, who doesn't have this training, and then it, it's a little harder to, to have that understanding of what the what the assessment data shows and and sometimes there's not always agreement on on what to do about it um so that's you know that's always where would you where would you recommend that someone start if they say hey you know what i want to learn more about sensor integration maybe they're maybe they're a year out of school maybe they're five years out of school and they just say hey you know what i want to learn more about si should they start should they just say hey i'm going to go through all four or all six however many classes there are at just pick a program and go, or you kind of mentioned the article that you're just talking about, but what would you, what's that first, first two or three steps that they should start doing? Well, you know, the, the book that I love that I think everybody should start with is sensory integration in the child by Dr. Ayers. And, you know, we, copy right now. <laughs> we, we did a remake of that so that it's updated. It's published by Western Psychological Service. So sensory integration in the child is, you know, that's that's the beginning. 
Um, and then, you know, the most recent book, textbook, is Schaff and Malo, 2015, A Clinician's Guide to Using uh, Sensory Integration with Autism. It's based on Schaff et al. randomized clinical trial. It's a manualized air sensory integration. It's beautifully organized. Um, and then in terms of courses, I would say, you know, to start with a theory course, you know, uh, sensory integration theory, I, you know, made the one for Classy, but, you know, there's others that you, you know, I mentioned other programs. So, um, but I think go look at sensory integration theory and, and start to get a good understanding of that. Um, because I think the more depth you have in understanding going into it, uh, the more motivated you will be to continue. I agree. And I mean, I'm SIPT. Technically, I'm SIPT trained. I don't use the SIPT very often as a school-based mm-hmm. OT. I just don't. Uh, but the theory, the theory is invaluable. I mean, it is just something that I think every clinician, if you're going to be working in a pediatric setting, you need to at least have the theory. So that way, as you're looking at a kid, as you're coming up with different ideas, at least you know the theory behind it. And so it's an option. So yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with that. Um, all right. So let's jump into the classy and the easy a little bit. Um, just share with us an overview of what is classy versus what is easy. And um, yeah, just an overview of what that is. All right. Well, classy, as I mentioned, is our nonprofit. Um, and we're, uh, we formulated it so that we would have an organization that where we could offer educational opportunities, but also seed leadership. So um, we we know we're aging out of you know of being the people who are teaching and you know and of course many of our mentors are are retired or retiring and so um, so our idea was to uh, get a foundation and to seed leadership around the world and and you know that's really happening we have we have really amazing people all over and and across the country and also in the United States and you know. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kelly Aldright, who's working with us that, that you know, and I mean, just to name one, I mean, yeah. you know, we could yeah. name everybody, but um, <laughs> okay, so that, so that was, so classy, we've tried to get together um, materials, we have a, a training program that has now been offered all over there, I think we're in 20 countries, maybe, maybe more. And um, and we're collaborating with at least 10 other um, international organizations. And there's a, the the pandemic sort of slowed things down, but there's a lot of international interest. Um, Now, the fact that we've been able to sustain the work of Classy through virtual media has been amazing. Great. And we're trying to get a lot of uh, work out that that people don't have to spend a lot of money on, that that we can get resources. So one of the things that we had so much fun putting together was our Wine Down Wednesday webinars. And so, I went to a few of those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, during the pandemic, we said, okay, how do we stay connected? Because this whole idea of social distancing was like, okay, physical distancing, distancing, but socially connected. Um, so we were able to make those available, you know, at no no charge. So we're trying to get more resources that you know don't cost too much that are that are going to be available to um, to therapists and you know to to get as many resources in the hands of families. And you know, one of the 
the goals is children understood. Okay, so this this is our tagline for assessment. Um, Zoe Malo, uh, who's my partner with Classy, um, and of course we have Katie Estrada. I mean, there's other. You know, I yeah. I I I don't want to leave anybody out, <laughs> but if I start naming names, I'm going to for sure leave people out. But, but um, Zoe was was Dr. Ayer's research assistant when she oh. was working on the SIPT. and so she was, and then she ran the Ayers Clinic for many many years, and um, so such a a powerhouse, a brilliant therapist, and so together with Dr. Diane Parham, who who you, she's yes, so wonderful, and yeah, so she she's been very instrumental in assessment development, including the sensory processing measure, which is very well widely used now. So the three of us, we felt that we understood the limitations of the SIFT, mostly accessibility. Um, and I, I don't need to go over all of that. You, yeah. you know, you, you, you don't use the SIFT much and you know why. Okay. Because, yeah. you know, it's big, heavy, but <laughs> so um, we, we thought, but here's the problem is if we don't identify the problem, the problem will not be adequately addressed. And one of the dilemmas is that most of our materials are in English, you know, so, so that privilege we have in the United States of having so many resources, we kind of started out that idea of like, oh, we have so many textbooks, well, they're in English. So how do we get this in the hands of people all over the world and not just in our, you know, US language and also not just US centric normative data. So, so we developed the easy uh, set of tests. They're a set of 20 tests um, and they're designed to assess all of the constructs of the of sensory integration and praxis. So including the perceptual areas, the postural and motor areas and the praxis areas and reactivity. So these are 20 performance tests. Um, we field tested them, we've pilot tested them, they have high, each item has high discriminative validity, reliability, and um, and then we started collecting normative data all over the world. And we, you know, our goal was 100 countries, and I think we had over 100 countries oh, wow. signed up, but then the pandemic really uh, put, a, put a wrinkle in our plans <laughs> and slowed everything down. Um, we still would like to collect more normative data, but right now what we have is we have about, I wanna say 2,400 sets, data sets. That's a lot. It's a lot, it's it's worldwide. Um, I think we have it translated in maybe 10 languages. Um, and so the process that we're in right now is to see, could we generate some preliminary normative data through these, uh, these data sets? Once, once that's done, which, which we're predicting is in 2021, we're working with a, an amazing team of experts, including Anita Bundy and her associates. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's that's what's next. Once we have the normative data, we can start to use the test that, and we've tried to make it um, easily accessible. So um, at, at a very affordable price just for the cost of the materials 
And then there will be some costs for maintaining the website, but um, other than that, this is, you know, really a truly a nonprofit venture and Classy has uh, agreed to, to be, to house this project, you know, so, um, so yeah. And yeah. if we can have an affordable, accessible set of tools, we hope that more therapists will be willing and able to use these tools to to identify and then get the right intervention going. Yeah. And so for anyone, I, I know we're using acronyms and just for everyone out there, EASY stands for Evaluation and Air Sensory Integration, right? Yes, yes, yes. Got Thank it. you. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So you mentioned 20 separate tests for the EASY. Earlier for the SIPT, it was 17. And I know you guys really looked at the SIPT when developing the EASY. You really wanted to kind of I, I know you didn't want to redo the SIFT, but you wanted to redo the SIFT in a way. Um, so are there additional tests or why is it 20 instead of 17? And why do you decide to do that? Well, we did use the SIFT. It's a brilliant yeah. um, set of tests. Um, and so, yeah, so we looked at that original work that Dr. Ayers did in the early to mid, you know, 1980s. Um, and and that informs our constructs. And so all of the research that was done using that tool, all the many, many, many factor analyses that were published. So, so we used the SIPT as a model, a beginning, and uh, it defined the constructs. So, um, so where did we get 20 instead of 17? Well, you know, some, some of our tests that we had hoped to do, like a, a drawing test, like the Beery motor coordination test or the motor accuracy test, we we weren't able to obtain, um, you know, a discriminative data. So we don't have one like that, but but we do have the Beery and we have the motor accuracy mm -hmm. test. So, um, but we have a, all of the constructs covered. So we have in the perceptual area, we have tests of a visual perception, tactile perception, proprioception, force and direction, and vestibular related measures. Uh, in the area of reactivity, we have one reactivity uh, test where we're actually doing, you know, sensory things and seeing does the child like it or not. And then we also have observations of reactivity during the tactile and movement tests. We also have auditory localization that's new. Dr. Ayers didn't have an auditory localization test. We have the postural control, um, the areas of testing that we used to do just clinical observations, but they were they were not standardized. We took the ones that we had the most confidence in that were the most reliable that discriminated and we have a postural control measure. We also have balance and bilateral coordination. And then praxis, we have, um, Everyone uh, knows the blocks. Everybody, everybody has seen that structure <laughs> that came with the tip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now we have make a silly room, so we have something, something a little different. I mean, such so exciting. Um, and then we've added an ideation measure. So, so that's an additional measure. Okay. You know, Ayers didn't finish an ideation measure. The only thing we have in the tactile area, which is so cool, that we've added is um, an oral uh, praxis test oh. shape you know so this has huge ramifications and um, we have an ocular motor praxis 
test. So, so we've added components that um, are supported by research that are uh, with items that are reliable and valid. So, so yeah, we've been able to expand a little bit from what the model was with the SIFT. Awesome. And also it's more modernized, right? So we, we are using Roche analysis um, where we hope to have a start and an end point uh, that will shorten the length of the test. It'll be online, you know, so the examiner could theoretically um, put the answers in as you go. Now, some of this you're going to have to learn how to score. For example, ideation, you have to video now. I mean, I do. I mean, you oh, have to okay. count and, and score. So, so it won't be automatic, but you will you know, it'll be much more in real time with, with modern, you know, more modern statistical tools. And, um, and what we hope is that it will make it more efficient and easier, shorter. Yeah, that's great. I, I did get asked to do the SIPT about a year and a half ago. And yeah. um, first of all, I had to find the little USB key to plug <laughs> into a computer. Then I had to find a computer that was old enough to run the, the program. So um, that'll be great. That'll be easier to get access to and whatnot. Um, you know, one thing that I, I do want to, we're going to go on. We have one more real topic that we want to talk about today. And that is kind of your practice where you do evaluations. Um, you mentioned it slightly earlier, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. But first I mentioned, I meant to talk about this earlier was to congratulate you and everyone who has had their hand in SI on it now being recognized as an evidence-based intervention for children, youth, and young adults by the National Clearinghouse on Autism Evidence and Practice. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts. How meaningful is that to you? I know there's long been a barrier. It's always SI doesn't have enough research. SI doesn't have enough research. That's what a lot of people would say um, when, when SI was brought up. So how important is this to you that it is now um, considered an, an EBP, evidence-based intervention, sorry, mm -hmm. in, intervention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's so exciting to see what's going on right now. Um, but I, I will tell you that when I started learning sensory integration in the 1970s, it was the only evidence-based practice I was learning. <laughs> so sensory integration has always been evidence-based. However, one of the things that happened is as OT, the mandate became that you had to be evidence-based as I was there to critique. Right. So many of the things, many of the methods that we were using didn't have evidence to critique and SI did. And the state of SI research in terms of, uh, you know, the rigor, I think also paralleled the maturation of the field, the profession of occupational therapy. We weren't we weren't sitting at the table getting those big grants with MIH. Yeah. And we had the biggest, best, brightest minds submitting grants and we were not able to play. Nobody got, nobody was getting funded because they were not sitting at the table distributing the grants. So, so, yeah. so yes, uh, I, I know the rhetoric of SI doesn't have enough research, but it, it, OT doesn't have enough research. And so SI kind of paralleled that, but, but I was very privileged to be part of the SI research collaborative that started in early 2000s. And this was the collection of university-based researchers and practitioners that came together with, um, with a small planning grant. And this 
this uh, this little team that we have about ten people have have continued for over the last about twenty years, and we've done a lot. So with a very um, intense intent to build and support the research in sensory integration, we've managed to publish a couple of special issues of. Uh, AJOT, I think mm -hmm. maybe three special issues. Um, we've uh, done a lot of, you know, publications, and one and one of the most recent and influential is the Shown at All systematic review in 2018. So, so this systematic review went into the Journal of Autism. Mm -hmm. It's got a very high impact factor, so that means it has you know more influence, and so. Uh, this was huge because, you know, there's there's also a press from the outside, not just from the inside, to diminish sensory integration in lieu of methods that are, you know, maybe more near and dear to the heart of other professions. Because SI, in my opinion, belongs in OT. It's best development it de developed in OT. So, um so this was huge. And then that external review, I think you're referring to the Frank Porter Graham report on, on evidence-based um, methods in autism. And none of, none of us that I know was, was involved in that. So that was completely external. Oh, wow. um, and they included sensory integration as an evidence-based method. Now, this is because primarily because we have two very strong randomized clinical trials, one by Schaff et al., one by Pfeiffer et al. There's also another article by Dunbar. Now, these are not the only uh, intervention studies in sensory integration. We have many more, but these were the strongest randomized clinical trials. So we have met the external criteria. What is enough? I mean, how much research yeah, right. do you have to have to say you're evidence-based? And we've met, met the threshold. Yeah, that's awesome. I just think it's amazing because throughout OT school and my younger years, it, it was constantly people like saying, you know, SI doesn't have the research. SI, oh, it's just a, um, it's just a one kid, you know, study. And now, like you said, there is that, that, well, it's always been there, but now it's really ingrained. It's a really strong two research articles that you really talked about there. So um, perfect. I really appreciate you saying that, that I think that helps a lot of people out there who struggle with that. You know, I want to provide SI, but I get that constant push of, People saying it doesn't, ha or it's not, it's not real, or it doesn't exist, or there's not enough research. Well, no, there is research. So, great. Well, and but I will say, okay, so what also came out very loud and clear, especially in the AOTA 2018 review, was when you compare the intervention studies, not just two randomized clinical trials, but the the wealth of studies, the studies that used a technique on its own for example, a weighted vest or a chew toy or a sit and move cushion, those studies show very little evidence that they work at all. Okay, now that could be because maybe the studies aren't very strong, but there's no evidence that says doing a sensory accommodation is evidence-based. Okay, so this is really important for school-based therapists because then when you compare to Air sensory integration, which is used with fidelity, the manualized, you know, where you have a space to work, you have equipment to work with, where you're doing the individualized therapy based on the characterization of the problem, where you have done a complete assessment. That is the kind of 
the intervention that is evidence-based. So you can't say you're doing an evidence-based intervention if you're just do, using a sensory tool. And so th this is also really important because you know, the rhetoric for sensory, you go, you don't have enough evidence. Well, now we do have enough evidence, but then there's a pushback of using <laughs> the manualized intervention. Like, no, we have enough, we have the evidence, it works, but you got to do it right. Yeah. And I know you and the whole team spent a lot of time developing the fidelity measure and making sure that it was separated between what is sensory integration versus what is, might be sensory strategies or something else. And so um, yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that too, is that we can't confuse articles that aren't sensory integration with sensory integration. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's jump to our final segment that I want to talk about. And that is IEEs, independent educational evaluations. I know you provide independent evaluations down here in Southern California. And, you know, as school-based OTs, not all, but, but many of us have felt that pressure of finding out that a parent has requested an IE. And, you know, sometimes it can cause some anxiety or it makes us feel like maybe we're not doing everything. From the outside provider perspective, because I know you do those IEs, what do you interpret when a parent comes to you or whoever it is that comes to you, the district, the advocate, whoever it might be asking for an IE? How do you interpret that rec or that request? Well, okay, yeah, that's that's the um, majority of my private practice right now, and I've been doing it for many, many years since since the IDEA reauthorization gave parents the the authority to request an outside assessment, you know, from an objective party that was not part of the district, and and you know, um, I am very happy that that parents have that opportunity because it does give an environmental press, right? It, it uh, I think it ensures accountability. And the other thing that I've seen in the best possible scenarios is that the team is informed by experts coming in almost like consultants um, and informing the team in their area of expertise. So I think that's when it's working the best. Um, now, you know, I know that sometimes it feels adversarial and, and in my, I really wish that it wasn't like that. I wish that, I really truly wish it yeah, wasn't like I, that. I completely but, agree. I, I like where you're going with the whole, it should be more consultative in nature in a way and working together. Yeah. So, so again, you know, as a, as an IEE evaluator, I think my job, what I'm being asked to do is to take a snapshot of the child in a certain amount of time to see what's gone on before, how is the child situated in his educational program, and at the end of the day, um, is OT going to be beneficial to as a related service to support that child in his educational uh, program, and is it educationally necessary? Right, that's that's the mandate, legal mandate. Um, and so for me, what I need to do is I need to look at the assessment data. I do my own assessment data. I gather information from the teachers, the parents. We observe, we you know, do performance assessment, and then we come up with our conclusion and, and our recommendation for service. Um, and sometimes it's in, um, in conflict with what perhaps the district therapist has, um, has recommended Sometimes it's very consistent with what the, the district therapist has recommended. And in that case, it's the best possible 
scenario that we're refining the goals, you know, we're in agreement. Okay. Maybe we're 15 minutes, you know, a week difference or something. Um, but sometimes I have to say uh, that I do an IEE and I can't even imagine that the child that I have seen has not been recommended for OT service. And so in that case, then I'm, I'm very much an advocate for this, for this student to get what they need. Yeah. And I think that's totally appropriate. And I want to ask you going a little bit further is within your evaluation, how, what tools do you use, whether it be um, citing evidence or really the experience that you have? I don't know. But what tools do you use to really bolster your evaluation, to give it the weight that, yes, this is a real good evaluation? Does that make sense? Yes. You know, and I'm glad you asked that as well, because sometimes I think I have sensory tattooed on my forehead. But (laughs) but the reality is that um, I'm very informed by the OT practice framework that I work that I have done. Um, And so I try to get the full spectrum of the OT process engaged, you know, so starting with occupational occupation and ending with occupation. And so I, I use an occupational profile. I use sensory motor assessments. If I can, I can't always use the SIP. Sometimes it's not possible, but um, I try to get sensory motor. I try to look at those foundation abilities. I look at adaptive skill areas. So I want to see, you know, what's actually going on in the daily life routines, many times from parent and teacher report. I want to look at skills, the fine motor skills. So I'll also do something like the BERI or the test of handwriting. So, you know, I want to see real skill. And then I also look at higher order functions, such as using the brief. So I try to hit the, the range of, you know, of developmental sensory motor, adaptive occupation skill, ability, and try to get into those performance patterns um, as well. So when I when I make my recommendation, I try to make it with that whole scope of function in mind. Yeah, no, and that's great that it's not just sensory. You are taking it from an occupation base from the top-down approach to get everything. Um, you said that in the best-case scenario, you and the districts are kind of on the same page. When that happens, do you call it a day after that IEP or do some districts have you kind of maintain a consultative relationship at all? Or um, how does that work? Well, okay. So usually my, my job is done after I attend the IEP. I'm uh, sometimes I will, uh, collaborate with the OT outside of the IEP to try to refine the goals or get together with that secondary IEP to make Mm -hmm. sure that that's, but in terms of actually providing a service to the family uh, following the IEE, I don't do that. And that's to prevent conflict of interest. So, you know, I, I try really hard not to have a, have a pony in that race where I would benefit from ongoing consultation with a certain district or a family or I, I just don't do that, but I really do try to um, get the family and the district uh, connected with service providers in their area. So we're always looking for, um, you know, OTs that 
that might be looking for a job in the district, or maybe they have a practice in the in the area, you know, something in proximity because families come from all over. So mm. try to try to get them connected with resources. Awesome. And you know, one thing I want to get out of you because you mentioned this when we were talking in our phone call that we did the other day. And that was that you sometimes see both influxes and drops in IEEs from particular um, areas. What what do you make of that? <laughs> you know, that just happened today. I got two referrals from a district that doesn't usually call me. So I think, all right, they've got an advocate in there who's decided that they that they should use me, or maybe they got on a, a listserv or a you know parent group or something. Um, but but oh but over time, um, what seems to happen is that the districts who are who are functioning very well and the and the parents are happy they don't con- they don't contact me you know so so I d- I don't get to see all the good work that you guys are doing out there I mean that's not who comes to me you know if they're happy I don't hear from you but. But then what'll happen is that, you know, maybe they're going along. This happened with one district. I won't name it, but things are going so well there. And then suddenly I got one, two, three. I had like a half a dozen referrals and you go, well, what happened? You know, and then you go, okay, well, you know, what's going on in that district, you know? And so I don't, I don't always know as an outside evaluator Mm -hmm. what happened, but many times what happens is either, the administration has changed or they have uh, changed the rules or suddenly some an administrator has decided they're going to take a hard line and they're not or they've started taking services away from children. And then I and then I get a whole raft of them and then I know like, OK, what's going on? And hopefully that situation gets repaired. Or sometimes there's an underserved district and suddenly somebody's in there who's kind of better informed and they're going, but wait a minute, we don't get those services. And so this is this is something, you know, being from from more of the coastal communities, mm-hmm. you know, they they get lawyered up real quick and those families, you know, get services yep. pretty quickly. And then you go a little inland to underserved communities. And sometimes you just, you know, it's really hard to believe what they're not getting, you know, yeah. that like, well, if you were in my area, this is what you would be getting more automatically. So sometimes they like, Oh, well, if, and then, then families get on board and then they go, okay, well, we, we want that too. And we want that too. So sometimes it's, it's a bit of a snowball effect. But one thing I want to, I want to yeah. say is that, you know, when I, when I started here in Orange County, I had already worked for a public school in Ohio. Um, and it wasn't just for children with orthopedic handicap or severe mental illness or, you know, mm-hmm. severely involved kids. And and there was nobody in Orange County. There were no OTs being employed in the district. In fact, CCS, all the special ed kids, yeah, yeah. If they didn't get CCS. They didn't get anything. Yeah. And one by one by one, oh, we advocated, we advocated hard because the districts didn't want to contract out to, you know, a private agency or an NPA, one by one by one. And I will have to say, you know, that oh, that most of the districts now in, in Orange County and surrounding counties have mm-hmm. OTs, yep. not just in-house. one, but, but more. Uh-huh. 
And so I continue to advocate, you know, that, you know, that, that you have this, and now you have, and I know you guys have these big caseloads, but you know, you, so you not, yes. So you, all those kids need OT, you need more OTs. And not only do you need more OTs, but you need a space to work. You need your equipment. You need a reasonable size caseload and you need the time to assess and make the proper intervention because otherwise the OTs feel completely overwhelmed by just the magnitude of demand that that's coming at you. And, and so that, you know, that's hard, but that can't dictate what you recommend for an individual child. I'm so glad you said that. Cause that's the same thing. I say the same thing, you know, we oftentimes as OTs and whether you're in a school or outside of the school, you, we complain about our caseload. And then what do we do about it? Oftentimes we'll try and exit kids. Well, that's a different way to go. A different way to think about that is to say, well, I need help not to exit kids, but to say, I need help. Look at this growing caseload. It's growing year after year after year. And that's not the time to say, Hey, let's exit kids because I have too many kids. No, that's the time to ask for help. Go to your administrator and show them how you can't fit. I don't know. I'm just going to make up a number 500 minutes in a week when there's only 400 minutes, like that's just how it is. And you need to stay held. So I'm glad you said that. And we need to advocate for other things too, like a space. Yeah. Yeah. Advocate. Yeah. I mean, there, I was in an IEP team meeting where the OT said, well, I can, I, you know, I use the psychologist room when they're out and I can use the hallway. And I went around the room. It's like speech. Do you have a place to work? Yes. APE. Do you have a place to work? Yes. Psychologist. Yes. Teacher. Yes. OT was the only one at the table who did not have a place to work. We, I mean, this, this is a point of advocacy. We, we need the tools of our trade and access to the, the tools of our trade and then have reasonable caseloads. I mean, that's all advocacy at a, at a, at a local state and national level to ensure that the services that we're providing are effective. And I'm not just talking about SI, but you know, I was in an IEP recently where the child was given five minutes a month of OT. And I know people are asking me about the effectiveness (laughs) of SI, but I want to know what is the effectiveness of five minutes a month consult for OT? What, and you, Oh, well, my, my child got OT, but it didn't work. That it doesn't work. It doesn't work to, have such a minimum amount of service that that it renders the perception of OT as ineffective when in fact you guys haven't been given an adequate amount of resources to to make a difference. The other thing is just to have handwriting goals and not expand. I was in an IEP meeting where they said, well, OTs don't work on mental health. And I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. we mm-hmm. do. We have a huge history in our profession Absolutely. of mental health. We are such a valuable resource in that direction of mental health for so many of our students. And so, so also, I advocate not to be reductionistic in the role that OT can play in school-based practice, not to overwhelm the practitioner, but but to have more of a breadth of understanding. Also, somebody told me, oh, well, the child's 13 and, and you know, he's a little too old for OT. And our adolescents, this is a huge area of advocacy because our adolescents are, are getting depressed. They're overwhelmed. They're transitioning to a whole other level of 
demand in their educational process. And uh, 13, you know, when you're my age, 13 still looks like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, no, you're right, though. And I am getting I mean, I'm all I'm on social media, I have the podcast and people have been reaching out a lot of people have been reaching out about what to do with high school, what to do with adult transition. And it is absolutely the right place for occupational therapy. I'm not saying it's easy. But it is the place where there is a need for more of us to find out more information to be more supportive in that role. Yeah. Because we're all about promoting health and participation through occupation. I mean, using lifestyle design and redesign. And yeah, so those high school kids, you know, yeah, there's there the the need is is vast. Uh, But, you know, okay, so I don't I don't want to leave on this (laughs) of grievances, but I just think it's so amazing to see that. Uh, schools are, you know, one of the the biggest employers of occupational therapists in the United States. It's it's phenomenal to see the impact we have had as a profession in schools when, you know, like we started, people didn't know what OT does. And so clearly OT has something to offer that's that's unique and really valuable. And it's so amazing. I mean, it's so great for me to see that that possibility exists where it didn't exist for, you know, people in my family, my brothers who had have disabilities and they didn't get any help, no help. And, you know, she's there for these kids. So, you know, that's, that's so amazing. Yeah. And I think it's now it's about one in four or one in five occupational therapists work in the schools. And like you said, yeah, they're just continuing to grow. I mean, there's more and more OTs in schools every day. It's fantastic. And um, we just got to, we got to keep advocating for ourselves and make it continue to happen. Uh, But Dr. Rowley, it has been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, being able or allowing me to pick your brain a little bit on sensory, on schools, on IEEs. Uh, Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? You know, I just think that we're pretty blessed to have such an amazing profession. And I have had just the best career ever. So just good luck to everybody who's listening. It's, you know, I think it's just great. And anyway, thank you for what you're doing and your contributions. You know, this is, this is pretty awesome what you're, what you're contributing out there. So thank you to everyone. Thank you. And then lastly, can you just really quickly off the top of your head, give the website for the classy? I can't remember what it quite is. Yeah, it's CL hyphen A-S-I dot O-R-G. So C-L dash A-S-I dot O-R-G, classy.org. Great. And I will be sure to put up the link to um, that as well in the show notes, as well as the discount that uh, Dr. Rowley and the Classy team are offering to listeners of this podcast. Um, It's for about a month, so you have access to it. until I think it's about the middle of March of 2021. I know you can listen to this podcast well beyond that, but um, there is an end date for that promo. And so be sure to check that out soon. If nothing else, take the class, the first class, which is the theory class, right? Mm-hmm. So take yep. that theory That's class. A good one. Take yep. all of them. They're all really good. <laughs> <laughs> all righty. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you later.
Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. So thank you, everyone. And a huge special thank you to Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rowley for coming on here. Please do check out the show notes at otschoolhouse.com forward slash episode 63, where you can get all the resources that we talked about today, or at least a link to them, as well as the transcript of the show notes in case you'd like to read along or review it at a later time. All right. So again, take care. Have a great day. Hope to see you at the Back to School Conference in August. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.